All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Paul's continuing his discussion on marriage, the question that um, the Corinthians had here. And he writes in verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such would have, will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So here we are, continuing this uh, study through First uh, Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul's talking about marriage. Anybody here see The Princess Bride, the movie The Princess Bride? So I'm thinking of Mowage, you know, <laughs> when, the, when the guy is uh, doing the... What's that? Is that who that was? Peter Cook? Yeah, okay. He's a funny guy. Uh, anyway, he's talking, Paul's talking here about marriage. Now, I realize as we've been going through this, this might be a hard text to kind of apply, you know, in, in the way we've been you know, in our lives, you know, the way we live now to what Corinth was uh, back then. Um, now, it's not unapplicable to our culture as a whole, but, I mean, you know, you look around our church and you see a lot of stable marriages that have been married 30, 40, 50, some even 60 years or more. Um, so this may not, you know, in, in the back of your mind, you may be thinking, well, this is nice to know, but... I'm not really finding too much that is applicable to my life, but understand, of course, that the culture to which Paul writes is not unlike the culture in which we live as a whole. And the concept of marriage, of course, has gone, you know, I mean, it's essentially been tossed out the door. It's being redefined. It's being uh, morphed into things that God never intended it to be morphed into. And there's still some good principles here in this passage that we could still learn. But as we continue our study through 1 Corinthians, we're halfway through now chapter 7, which gives a solid view of uh, Christian marriage and singleness. He, Paul will 
lay out some guidelines here for both marriage and singleness, and that's important as well. Now, last time we looked at verses 17 through 24, in which Paul gives a principle um, that he is keen to teach in this church here. The principle basically is such to remain in the situation in which you have been called, to bloom where you're planted. So he says, were you, uh, were you married when God called you? Then do not seek a divorce. Were you s- single when God called you? Then don't necessarily have to seek a, a wife. Now, given the context in Corinth, Paul is seeking to prevent the Corinthians from doing something wrong to correct something wrong. In other words, two wrongs don't make a right. Okay, If you realize that the marriage you're in as, as you come to Christ... Well, you didn't go through a biblical divorce, so you want to divorce your current spouse to fix the previous relationship. Paul says, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Stay in the situation in which God has called you. All believers in Corinth were coming to faith in Christ. They were seeking to sever all previous relationships and start anew. Of course, part of this is a carryover of the pagan beliefs that the Corinthians held uh, regarding uh, sexual activity, regarding asceticism, um, even within the bonds of marriage. He had some that were, you know, again, this, this whole chapter is prompted by a statement in chapter 7, verse 1, where the Corinthians had this belief that it is, a good, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But part of it was also based on realizing that a Christian being married to a non-Christian was somehow unholy or unrighteous, so they need to correct that as well. And Paul tells them that God has called them at that period of time in their lives uh, to walk in the situation that they are in in such a way that glorifies the Lord. And then Paul uses two, two illustrations to um, sort of make his point more clear. He uses the illustration of circumcision and slavery. And the point is is that God can, and often does, use believers called in various situations and stations of life in order to redeem those situations. In other words, as we we, we looked at this last time, when you look back at verse 16, Paul tells the, the individual spouses, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? God has called you in that situation, and he can redeem that situation. So the point Paul is saying here in that passage last time is don't seek to change your situation. Let God redeem that situation through you. So now as we move on to the next section here, um, Paul is going now to apply this principle to the lives of the Corinthians. Now the, the section really goes through verse 40. And it looks at five different situations here. And in verses 25 through 28, he's going to look at those who are unmarried seeking marriage. And then those who are currently married in verses 29 to 31. Those who are unmarried compared to those who are married, verses 32 to 35. Those who are engaged to be married, 36 to 38. And those who are widowed seeking to be remarried in verses 39 and 40. So we're going to look at the first three today, and then we're going to look at the other two, Lord willing, next Sunday. But Paul is not going to apply this principle that he has just stated into these situations. 
So to start, to marry or not to marry, uh, in verses 25 through 28, Paul's going to talk about here the present distress. And Paul begins this section by directing his response to virgins, as you see in verse 25, right? Now to those, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. Now, the word there, virgin, comes from the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin. <laughs> so, no, no big shocker there. But it can also speak of an unmarried woman, a maiden, someone who is of marriageable age, in the sense of a woman who has never been married. You wouldn't necessarily use it to speak of a widow or, or someone who is divorced. This would, have been, this would be a woman who has never been married. Uh, it is used to speak of Jesus' mother. It's the same word used to speak of Jesus' mother in the Gospels. Now, given the context of what we see here in verses 30, or 25 to 35, it is probably best to see virgins here as referring to engaged women or those who are betrothed. Those who are betrothed. That's what the ESV has, right? Betrothed. Um, the New Living Translation has young women who are not yet married. Uh, the New King James Version's uh, word virgin there is both a more literal translation of Parthenos, but it also can be seen as betrothed. I think there may even be... No, there's no, no footnote there. Um, I think the ESV and the New Living Translation capture the idea better, given the context. So the betrothed are those who are not yet married. And it is clear from what has just been said, as well as considering the language of now concerning that you see there that begins verse 25, that this construction here is used six times. Paul is addressing a different uh, issue of the, from the Corinthians here. That phrase there, now concerning, is used six times in this book. In chapter 7, verse 1, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1, and verse 12. And each time it introduces another topic that the Corinthians have that they want Paul to address. So Paul says, okay, now concerning this, now concerning that, now concerning the other thing. So Paul's addressing these things, and he's now addressing the unmarried. What about those who are seeking marriage, the, the betrothed? And that's what we see here. The rest of verse 25, Paul is basically saying that there is no direct command here from the Lord regarding those who are betrothed. I have no commandment from the Lord. Now, Jesus didn't say a lot about marriage. And what He did say doesn't address this issue that Paul is looking at here about women who are betrothed or men who are betrothed to be, to be married. So Paul then adds, he says, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. Paul here is going to give his view, his opinion, his, his judgment on the situation. In other words, this is Paul's sort of best apostolic advice. It's like you write to the, you know, the advice column in the paper, Dear Paul, you know, <laughs> I am betrothed. I live in a, in a cesspool of a city called Corinth. There's immorality all around, and I'm engaged to be married. Should I continue in marriage, or should I break this thing off? And Paul is giving his best apostolic advice here. His, now, when I say it's advice or opinion, it doesn't mean to be taken any less than, than the rest of Scripture. It's just that Paul is not commanding this. 
He is not commanding this. And it'll be made clear as you get through the rest of this passage. This is not a command. Paul's not saying, okay, do this. He's He's saying, look, given the situation you're in, this is probably the best thing you should do. So consider it apostolic advice, inspired apostolic advice. Now Paul gives the motivation for this apostolic advice in verse 26 where he says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. That's the advice. And the motivation for the advice is because of the present distress. Now, again, other translations help kind of flesh this idea out. If you have an ESV, it probably says impending distress, something that's about to happen. Another translation says present crisis or impending crisis or the pressures of life. Now, as with other biblical passages that we've seen through not only our study in 1 Corinthians, but also in Romans and other books, there is some debate as what is meant by this phrase, the present distress. Now, there are two main options here that seem to be popular amongst the scholars. First one is that the present distress is referring to some current or present reality that is going on in Corinth as Paul is writing. Now, according to some commentaries that I read, there was around this time that Paul is writing in the early 50s uh, AD, there was a grain famine in Greece that caused food shortages for up to five years. So Paul is saying, because of this present distress, now there could be other things going on in Corinth that would warrant Paul saying this. Perhaps persecution of the church, other things. So the first opinion is that present distress is referring to something happening then and there in Corinth as Paul is writing. Something very specific to their context. The second option for present distress has, okay, I'm going to throw a big word, I've used this word before, and I'm sure you've heard it before, has an eschatological flavor, okay? By eschatological, that word just means sort of like an end times feeling. It's a, a you know, it, Paul is using that phrase present distress with a sense of the impending age to come. In other words, because of the return of Christ is imminent, that's I-M-M-I-N-E-T, not imminent with an A. That means near. Imminent means close, short in time. Uh, the return of Christ is imminent, meaning that the return of Christ is the next thing that is on God's calendar to do. Uh, the return of Christ has always been seen as imminent from the time of His ascension up to now. You're going to be like, well, it's been 2,000 years later. How can it still be imminent? Because guess what? <laughs> God's time is not our time. Right? Peter says in his second letter that, that uh, a thousand years is as a day to the Lord and a day is as a thousand years. Time does not affect God. God can say, just like we've been looking at the book of Revelation, the time is near. Well, how, how near can it be when it's been 2,000 years? Again, God's concept of time is different than our concept of time. God is outside of time in that sense. He created time by Making the, by breathing in the creation as we see. So because of the return of Christ, it's being imminent, and living for Christ, as Paul will say in Galatians 1 verse 4, living for Christ in this 
present evil age, this is creating an impending crisis. This idea of this, and we'll see this, and I'll explain it a little more as we go along. Now, which view to take? Is it something that is happening right then and there in Corinth? Or should we take this sort of eschatological view that Paul is giving here? I think one could probably see maybe both views being true. Uh, but I think given what Paul will say in the next section, verses 29 to 31, I think the section, second option lends itself better to the context. That Paul is looking at, just you know, maybe to look ahead here, because Paul says in verse 29, he says, the time is short. And at the end of verse 31, he says, the form of this world is passing away. In other words, the impending crisis, the present crisis, is the fact that this world is passing away. This time is short. So his advice is motivated on that. So I think that fits better with the context. Either way, whichever view you take, Paul's apostolic advice to this church is that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And then he elaborates in verses 27 through 28. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Now again, this language that Paul uses here, bound and loose, might again seem to suggest marriage, but again, we're arguing here for uh, people who are engaged, people who are betrothed. And in the ancient world, a betrothal, 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 okay. In the ancient world, a betrothal was binding. It was, it was, it was a step in the marriage process up until the time you would have the ceremony and the consummation of the wedding, the betrothal was still binding, and you still had to seek a divorce from the betrothal. It's not like how you know, we engage, we're engaged in this, you know, you, a young man asks a young woman to marry, marry him, and she says, oh, yes, I will, and then she, he gives her the ring, and then for some reason they don't like each other, they break up, she maybe keeps the ring, maybe she gives the ring back, and that's it. That's it. It's just, you know, it's just a simple breakup. Really, the engagement... It has no binding sense to the marriage. But in a betrothal, you are, in a sense, bound here. So when Paul says bound and loose, it doesn't mean that these people are married. They are engaged, they are betrothed, and that betrothal was a binding arrangement prior to the marriage. Now Paul here advises, again, because of the present distress, if you are betrothed, if you are engaged, do not seek to split. If you are not engaged, do not seek to be engaged or betrothed. Now, Paul in verse 28 makes clear that in any case, getting married is not sin. He's like, if you do marry, it's not sin. Paul's advice is just that. It is advice. It is apostolic advice based on the present distress. But he gives it in the hopes, as he says here in verse 28, of sparing them trouble in the flesh. He wishes to spare them trouble in the flesh. And we'll elaborate that as we move on now to verses 29 to 31. Paul elaborates now what he means by this trouble in the flesh that he wishes to spare the Corinthians. I'm going to read up to the first half of verse 31 now. 
But I say this, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. Now again, the key to understanding Paul's thought in the previous point is that phrase, the time is short. That idea of short is the, the, the time is about to be wrapped up. It is about to be uh, drawn together. It's, it the, carries the idea of sort of like a sail being furled, being rolled up and wrapped up. The time is about to be wrapped up. Now why is the time short? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, has ascended. He sits now at God's right hand. The next thing that awaits, the next thing, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the next thing that remains on his calendar is to return. That is the only thing that is left on God's to-do list is the return of Christ and the wrapping up of this age. And the time is short because right now is the last days. Paul is not teaching from his perspective that Jesus... Now, it's not like Paul was saying that Jesus is going to return like next Tuesday when he says the time is short. He's just saying that, Paul, you know, that Jesus is going to come soon. Paul believed that the return of Christ was imminent. You could see this in some of his writings, particularly in First and Second Thessalonians. He probably held a belief himself that Christ might return in his own lifetime. That's how imminent Paul believed that Christ was going to return. So while the present distress could refer to some specific issue causing trouble in first century Corinth, it is better, in my opinion, to see the present distress as the imminent return of Christ. If you recall, as, our, as we had been going through our study in the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus, in, during that study, we looked at Jesus' own discussion about his return in Matthew chapter 24, where he talks about uh, his return. Matthew 24, verses 5 through 14. Jesus speaks about his own return. And this is prompted by. Jesus being in Jerusalem and he's passing by the temple and his disciples are marveling at the marvelous work of this temple. And Jesus says, do not marvel because the time is short where there will be one stone will not be on, you know, the, the, the temple will come down. And the disciples are like, when is this going to happen? And Jesus tells him, starting in verse 5 of chapter 24, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, as I read this, you could probably hear that as Jesus describes this age from the time of His ascension to the time of His return, this age is the last days, and He talks about this as a a period of time in which there will be wars, rumors of wars, there will be famines, pestilence, all kinds of things are going to happen. And it's clear that when you hear that, that's why Paul refers to this period of time that we're in as the present distress. And then in fact, in verse 22 of chapter 24, Jesus continues and says, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The days will be shortened. The time is short. That's what Paul is saying here. The last days are the period between His ascension and His return. And from our perspective, it has been a long time. But from God's perspective, the time is short. So what Paul has said then in verses 25-28 through regarding betrothed people, he said because the time is short. And so Paul advises them to have the proper perspective on things. So he says, because the times are short, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use this world as not misusing it. So he gives five categories here to describe the time is short. And because the time is short, this is how you should behave. If you have a wife, you should be as though you had none. If you weep, you should be as though you did not weep. If you rejoice, as though you did not rejoice. If you buy anything, as though you did not possess. And if you use this world as not misusing it. Now, We have to be very, very careful here because it would be very, very easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Because when you read this, those who have wives should be as though they had none. This sounds like the exact opposite of what Paul has been saying earlier in the chapter, where if you are separated from your wife or husband, you should reconcile and reunite, and you should be as unmarried until you can reconcile. Now it sounds like Paul is telling married men to live like they're single. <laughs> and the married men said, you don't want to live like you're single, don't. Your wife is sitting right next to you. Don't, don't say that. <laughs> so what's up here, Paul? What are you saying to us? Same thing with weeping and rejoicing. It sounds like Paul is prescribing a sort of a stoic, stiff upper lip type of mentality here, Right? which contradicts what he says elsewhere when he says in Romans 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. What's up, Paul? What are you saying here? Again, Paul is framing what he says here in an eschatological sense, in an eschatological framework. It's okay to marry. It's okay to weep and to rejoice and to buy and possess and to even use the things of, the, of this world, but you have to realize the time is short. The time is short. The form of this world is passing away, as he says in the other half of verse 31. Enjoy the things of this world. God has given them to us to enjoy. Marriage is a gift. Enjoy those things. Enjoy the joys of life. 
But do not cling to these things. Do not find your uh, lasting joy or pleasure in these things because the time is short and because the form of this world is passing away. We need to live this life in light of the next life. We need to live in this age in light of the age to come. That is Paul's point here. Do not cling to the things of this world. Do not, do not find a lasting joy or pleasure in the things of this world because the things of this world, the form of this world, is passing away. And that takes us now to the last section here where Paul goes on to talk about the profitable life. Verses 32 to 35. So again, Paul's advice based on what we have heard in verses 25 to 31 is, I want you to be without care or concern. I want you to be without care or concern. That's how he starts verse 32. So I'll read 32 to 34. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is unmarried cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So again, because the time is short, and the form of this world is passing away, Paul wishes to have us be without care. I want you to be without care in this world. And then the rest of verses 32 to 34, Paul lays out some very basic and simple truths. If you are an unmarried man, then you can avoid a lot of the cares of this world and focus on serving the Lord. He's not prescribing this. This is a simple fact of life. right? If you are unmarried, if you have no spouse, if you have no other connections to things of this world, then you can serve the Lord with a singular focus. It's not negative or against marriage. It's just He's just sort of championing, in a sense, the virtues of being single. And the same thing with woman, right? A, a single woman can live her life and focus on how she may be holy both in body and in spirit. What about the married? Well, both married men and married women have cares, right? They care about the things of this world. It's, it's not, it, when he says that, it's not like, a, like a, a, a sinful focus on the things of this world. He's just, it's just, again, it's a simple fact. If you are married, you have things you have to worry about, Right? <laughs> Can I get an amen from the married people? If you are married, you have things in this world to worry about. It's not, again, it's not negative about marriage. It's just stating facts. A married man cannot serve the Lord with singular focus, but has also to concern himself how he may please his wife. A married woman cannot focus all her efforts on holiness and body and spirit, but concerns how she may please her husband. You're married, guess what? You got to pay bills, right? You got to put food on the table. You got to take care of kids. You got to work jobs. You got to pay taxes. You got to worry about the future. You got to set aside for education. You got to do all these things, all these things in the world in order to raise your children, to raise your family. 
that a person who is single does not have those cares and concerns. It's just a simple fact. Now, to be sure, these things can all be done to the glory of God, right? Paul says, you know, regarding those who work, work not trying to please your earthly masters, but to please the Lord, right? You can do these things to the glory of God. But again, all these things that a married couple has to worry about are things of this world. Things that are passing away. And the time is short. But marriages and families necessarily introduce limitations on how one, how much, I should say, one can serve the kingdom of God, how much one can serve in the church. A husband can't just decide to get up one day and go on a foreign mission trip and be away for three to six months. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's a godly thing to do, but you can't leave your wife and children behind. A wife can't just decide to serve 20 to 30 hours a week at a women's shelter and you know, remove herself from her family context. These things need to be balanced, right? You've got to balance these things uh, with other worldly concerns in a marriage. Again, just another uh, illustration of this. In Luke chapter 10, again, a well-known story of Martha and Mary. In Luke chapter, you have a Reformation study Bible, it's on page 1,625, so uh, just saying. In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him, that is Jesus, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, 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 Martha. Oh, I almost hear the Brady Bunch, right? Marcia, Marcia, Marcia. <laughs> Sorry. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now notice how Jesus doesn't tell Martha, you are worried about sinful things. He, he, just, she, he just tells her, you are worried about many things. Mary has chosen the best thing, to be at the feet of Jesus, to listen to the words of Jesus, to absorb and, and, and soak in the teaching of Jesus. And that's how it can be sometimes in a marriage. You are worried about many things. Many things that pertain to this world. Not bad things, just things that distract and, and serve to take your focus away from singularly focusing on the Lord. These things need to be balanced, of course, in a marriage. Now Paul concludes his point in verse 35. You can go back to 1 Corinthians 7. And he says, And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So Paul says all this for their benefit, for their profit. And again, this is not a command. This is Paul's apostolic advice in light of the present distress and that the time is short. I'm looking at the clock, my time is short too. Paul is emphasizing singleness as the profitable life because he wants them to serve the Lord without distraction. 
But again, we need to keep in mind that Paul is, is clear that getting married is not sin. He says that earlier. If you get married, it's not sin. You have not sinned if you, if you get married. Those who are betrothed should honor their commitments, but the single will be better off staying as they are. That's kind of what Paul seems to be saying here. Now, as we wrap up here, it does sound like, like Paul maybe has a negative view of marriage, right? It kind of, you can almost see that. Again, you have to take this into the context of what Paul is writing into here. He's, he's writing to these Corinthians. They're in this very wicked situation that they're in. Um, he believes that the time is short, this world is passing away, and he's really trying to just give them advice on how best to live in this situation in such a way that you are free from distraction, that you are not concerned about the things of this world, and that you are, you will, he wants to spare them trouble in the flesh. Now next time, I'm going to talk more about Paul's positive view on marriage. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that because I, I don't want you to go away thinking that Paul does not like being married. Okay. Um, Paul has a lot of wonderful things to say about marriage, and we'll, we'll look at that next week uh, as we finish this passage. But I will stop here. Next time we will, finish, we will finish chapter 7 next time. I promise you that. Unless the Lord returns. Then... Well, then you won't need to know anyway, because then you'll already know it, and I won't have to teach you. But if the Lord tarries, and we're all here again next Sunday, we will finish chapter 7.